previously on Fredwatch. Sean S. Cunningham's quick cash grab to capitalize on the success of John Carpenter's Halloween to simply keep the lights on proved that the low-budget slasher could be turned into a formidable franchise. But Kendall, did you lose your head for Friday the 13th? There are a lot of flaws in this that I personally can't whistle past, but they're not detrimental to the overall film for me because it's still a film that I enjoy and I have enjoyed for a number of years mostly for, for Mrs. Voorhees and, and Kevin Bacon. And the fact that this film also just takes something as so wholesome and fun and idolised as like a summer camp that kids look forward to going into turning into this mm -hmm. place of horrific tragedy. It's just awesome. And that's one trope I love that horror movies do. Three and a <laughs> half out of five for me. I love that we've got some great visual effects here. The makeup is just absolute perfection from Tom Savini. Again, based on the resources they had. Yeah. The film took from other horror movies from the 60s and 70s and brought the best elements and put them together. It's what a lot of contemporary filmmakers do now. I really do enjoy this movie a lot. I've seen it multiple times and we'll see it many more times again. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a lot of fun. Four and a half from me. Oh, nice. <laughs> Excellent. I think I really need to watch part two because I've never seen part two. Okay. And That's I, a date, Kendall. Yeah. And now on to today's episode of Fred Watch. Ladies and gentlemen, warning, spoilers ahead. Five long years he's been dormant and he's hungry. Jason's out there, watching, always on the prowl for intruders, waiting to kill, waiting to devour, thirsty for young blood. Good evening and welcome to television. Hello. Hello. Hi there. Good day. Whoa. I'm Wayne Stellini and welcome to Fredwatch, where we view and review films, everything from the mainstream to the obscure. Joining me today is the one and only Kendall Richardson. Hello, everybody. Kendall, Hello. welcome back to Fredwatch. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you once again for having me. Always a pleasure. Kendall, today's Friday the 13th. It is. Oh, it's, yes, it's an unlucky day for some. So mm -hmm. just wondering, do you have any particular superstitions? As a fan of horror, as a fan of the supernatural in general, I tend to kind of not have those superstitions, but mm. I say that. But then at the same time, I would not get on a plane if it was Friday the 13th. I <laughs> avidly avoid that because I have a terrible fear of flying and that's just a recipe for the disaster and my anxiety. But I think the only other one, you know, people have the black cats. They, you know, mm. they have the, you break a mirror, bad luck for seven years. I, the ladder thing, walking under ladders. Yeah. I'm, that's my thing. That's why I'm like, nope, I will walk around yeah. every time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how about you, Wayne? Well, I'm, I'm similar to you in, in so far that I would instinctively say, no, I'm not superstitious, not really. But I do have to say there are certain things when I find myself in certain circumstances or in, in the moment of something, I realize that I actually do have superstitions. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm like you, actually. I tend to not walk under ladders. I almost take it more from a, a safety standpoint, though. Another one, it's funny you mentioned flying on Friday the 13th because 
last time I was on an airplane, I, I went online and booked my ticket and selected the seat that I wanted. And the best seat, really, the one with the most leg room was in um, row 13. Oh, no way. And I was about to. And then, you know, I was reading sort of the, the conditions of it. And because it's got the wider gap, it's because it's near the emergency exit doors on the side of the cabin. Uh, and they said, oh, you know, you, you need to be of, of this strength and it's helpful if you're this height and, you know, things like that. And I'm just like, well, I'm short statured and, and, and things like that. So probably not. And I think, though, the fact that it was row 13 pushed me even more to go, I'm just going to go row 14 and I'm going to have a good flight. (laughs) (laughs) But nice. Yeah. But, but the funny thing is though, since I've become a fan of the Friday, the 13th films, I consider Friday, the 13th, my lucky day before then growing up, I believed in all of that. Whatever could go wrong would go wrong on Friday, the 13th, because it's an unlucky day. But mm-hmm. I get excited every Friday the 13th because I'm like, it's Friday the 13th. It is my lucky day. And it's not like I go out and buy lottery tickets or anything like that. But I just feel positive about the day. It's, like, it's, it's a good day. I'm like, nothing nice. goes bad on Friday the 13th because <laughs> it's Jason's day. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You, twer- yeah. you turned it around. You made, you've made it work for you. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, because I love Jason Voorhees so much. He's my favorite horror character and why wouldn't i celebrate the day that he's the most famous for you know doing his thing absolutely speaking of the man (laughs) it's only fitting that on this friday the 13th we're reviewing the movie that proved that slashers could become a franchise it's 1981's friday the 13th part two please explain Five years after Mrs. Voorhees, Betsy Palmer, still traumatised over the drowning of her son, Jason, slaughtered a group of young counsellors nearby, Paul Holt, John Fury, opens a training facility for camp counsellors on the shore of the notorious Crystal Lake. Paul dismisses a persistent urban legend that says Jason actually didn't drown and ultimately witnessed the killing of his mother at the hands of Alice Hardy, Adrian King. However, it isn't long until the facility's counsellors and training begin disappearing, one by one. The unexpected box office success of Sean S. Cunningham's Friday the 13th the previous year saw this sequel sweep into production. Made for a mere $1.25 million and shot in 30 days, Jason Voorhees was resurrected and the horror genre would never be the same again. So Kendall... Were you in this fucking room with Jason and Friday the 13th, part two? <laughs> Bravo, sir. That was great. <laughs> Look, <laughs> I mean, I was in a room. Watching- <laughs> you were at a safe distance, uh, weren't you? <laughs> far removed from any, any, any Crystal Lake-like camps. Yeah, so this film disappointed me a little bit because... Mm. I'm a fan of the first film. I enjoy the first film. We know it's not a perfect film, but it does what it is supposed to do. Mm. It achieves what it sets out to do from the beginning. And it, and, but it has, it has a good story, the first mm. one. It all makes sense. It all flows pretty well. Um, this one is just kind of... You know, it made me think of Star Wars and how people <laughs> complained about The Force Awakens being a carbon copy. Yeah. of a new hope yeah. Yeah. and and i'm like well at least force awakens 
had some substance to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that's not to say that this film doesn't have its moments because, yeah. you know, there are certain characters that I really liked that I've connected with on, on screen and enjoyed watching. And then there were others like Scott. <laughs> because, oh man. I, if, that, if this man had existed in this film, in you know, like a contemporary setting, Terry would have murdered him. It wouldn't have been Jason. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're talking about when, when Scott steals her clothes more than anything else. Is that the more moment or just everything? Yeah. Well, it's pretty much everything. I loathed him from the get go. I mean, I, it, look, he was kind of charming during, you know, that scene when they're, you know, they're kind of getting to know each other, the, mm. the counselors are training and, and, you know, he offered, he's like, would you like a dance? And she's all like, no, thank you. <laughs> but then he dances with the dog muffin <laughs> and it's so cute. And he's like sweet talk. And, you know, t- you can see Terry is sort of charmed, but then he turns around and he's just like taking her clothes and like, She's stark naked and she doesn't even react in a way befitting a, a woman scorned for me. But I don't think, I don't know if that's the writing or the fact that she's not a great actress, but that's, yeah, that is what that is. But yeah, so I should have known B. Scott was going to be trouble. Yeah. Yeah. A little, little bit of both, a little bit of both, but I should have known Scott was trouble when he, you know, the first time we see him, he's, uh, you know, has a slingshot trained on her basically exposed Rhea and I'm just like okay this is the movie we're all right cool these are the characters nowhere near as good and and pure as the original cast no there's there's a bit of shenanigans going on going on between them it's kind of like you're right in the first film they were all very much friends like yes you had couples in there but Mm. there, there was something quite harmonious about the people in part one I mean here I feel like the characters are on a very similar level, you know, they're still all on, on the same page. Like they're happy to, to hang out. Scott doesn't exercise it subtly and he is very much a man of his time. A hundred percent. Yeah. A, a young teenager pursuing the girl that he wants to pursue and not taking no for an answer. And you're right. You could not do it today because we're, we're more respectful these days, but yeah, but even in its context, Kendall, you are happy for Scott to, well, get his fate, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) it's a pretty awful way to go. Yes. But uh, I wasn't exactly shedding a tear (laughs) at his on-screen demise. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know. I just yeah, this film this film is yeah, I didn't I, I didn't enjoy it, but yeah, there's just there's so many things about it that just don't really work for me, especially compared to the first one. Yeah, there are a few things that can be really jarring if you take a deep dive into the movie. And I think you'll either sit on one or two points. Uh, or you might be somewhere in between, which is where I'm sensing. But it, it's almost <laughs> like, okay, well, I, I took a deep dive there are things that shouldn't work and probably don't, but that's okay because the film works as a whole or no, there are things that shouldn't work and they don't work. And so the film doesn't work. (laughs) Right. Um, With this one particularly. And I think especially when we consider the bookends of this movie. So this particular film amongst fans, what I gather from listening to podcasts and what I reading online and people's feedback polarizes fans 
of Friday the 13th. They either Mm -hmm. really enjoy it or some of the problematic elements of the story structure and even mythology of Jason Voorhees just annoys them way too much. You know, you, you touched upon it. It is pretty much a copy of the the first film, but probably watered down in terms of its character and and plot development. I mean, it tries to up the ante on the kills and the gore because they're the gags that we love about these movies. Mm -hmm. But where I feel that the first film really did focus on the characters as individuals, this one probably focused more on the character dynamics. So whilst we don't really get to know the characters as individuals, we're more focusing on how they interact with one another and how that then serves the story. But we'll talk about the characters in a moment. One of the things that is contentious about this, and we'll take away the producer's desires to make money, (laughs) right? Paramount's, Paramount's wishes to cash in on the success of part one. Let's not be too cynical about the suits. <laughs> and we'll, we'll address the elephant in the room. Didn't Jason drown all those years ago? What's he doing here? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Literally. I have two opinions about that. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of like that this film really uh, is the beginning of that mythology of mm. Jason being this impenetrable force this yeah. you know it's not something that cannot be stopped cannot mm. be cannot be killed and it makes you question the events of the first film especially that glorious ending yeah. um <laughs> when when jason emerges from the lake yeah you know? and, and alice just really seems to be convinced that that really happened and so then you see jason coming back it's mm. you know it's revealed that it's him killing uh in this film and you kind of it makes you question, oh, shit, was Alice, you know, not making that up? Like, did that really happen? But at the same time, it kind of, when you, when you think about it, Jason still being alive kind of undercuts a lot of uh, Pamela Voorhees' motivations mm. in the first film. And, like, because, you know, if he was alive, why didn't he reach out to his mother? You know, if she yeah. loves him so much. They have such this, they have such a bond, you know, and especially because he knows like he's stalking these woods. Surely he knows that she's going around killing in his name. Like mom, stop, stop, stop. But then you can say that. And then, but then part of me also kind of thinks that just going on Jason being built up as this figure of just yeah, unstoppableness. Mm. Uh, I just kind of feel like, there's something that's not right within him. There's yeah. something maybe supernatural that's just kind of within him and that's why he's alive mm. and why he he's, you know, doing what he's doing and not, yeah. So I just, I, so that's kind of a really long-winded way of kind of saying that I, I don't have an opinion either way, but I have, <laughs> these are kind of my thoughts on, on that interpretation. So I can understand why this would be very contentious amongst the hardcore fans of the community. Yeah. Well, I mean, the film does an effort, like puts, I think it puts a good effort in trying to justify Jason's presence as the killer in this movie. So we've got the mythology, which Paul explains in that wonderful campfire scene. Like I particularly like it just so at this stage, Jason's already an urban legend. So people accept that Jason is a thing, whether they believe he is, you know, drowned in the lake and his body was never recovered. And that's the end of that. Or that 
he did resurface from the lake after his mother died and, or maybe just before his mother died and witnessed her killing and then avenged her death by killing Alice. And we'll talk yeah. about that in a sec. Cause that's also quite contentious about Alice's mm. death in this movie. But then we also have uh, Ginny's theory and Ginny is purposefully studying child psychology so she can explain why and how Jason can actually still be present. And one of the things I do like about this film, I think the beginning component of it pushes a lot of exposition. It's quite economical in terms of its its runtime. And so it does put a lot of exposition in the beginning. So we know who everyone is. We know their place in this, in this movie and who they are. And with Ginny especially, it's established that she's studying child psychology. And again, that sort of adds to a really cute dynamic between her and Paul when they're fighting over her being late to the camp and them over the car and, and things like that. Like, I think you get little moments of their relationship. You believe that they've been a couple for quite a while, actually, because yeah, yeah. for two young people, they do bicker <laughs> like a married couple, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is really sweet. But Ginny then suggests that maybe he didn't drown. Maybe it was almost like a near drowning and that he was so frightened. So we've got, for example, people think that, that this boy drowned. So the camp was closed. So where is Jason going? His mother's packed and left. He's fending for mm. himself and he's not developing properly. And then suddenly the camp is populated again. And that draws him to the camp. And then he sees his mother die. Uh, and then this now spurs this vengeance once again. One of the mm-hmm. things with the Friday the 13th films is, yes, it does require a lot of suspension of disbelief, <laughs> but it also <laughs> does require you to ignore timelines. <laughs> like you would not believe. It must be yeah. done. But when we consider how young Jason looks in terms of his build and bulk, a supernatural element has to be there because he would not be as agile if he was the age that I suppose he is supposed to be. For me, I like Ginny's theory because I think it's a, it's a basis to go on. It's not the whole truth of Jason. There's something quite nice about it being a mystery too, because it shows that there is this sort of evil force within him. He is, a killing machine really and he he's he's the shark in jaws right <laughs> that's just yeah. his purpose um yep and the actor steve daskowitz was never actually given a script he was just steve minor the director just said okay oh. you're now doing this you're now doing that and now you're like and just directing him scene by by scene as as a motivation i mean i think it works i, I adore his performance yeah. in this so yeah so i think in terms of the jason story how he came to be in here in part two there's not a definitive answer and i don't think the the makers of this film ever really tried to nail it i feel like they went along the lines of let's just give enough enough to say well this is how it could happen and who better than Ginny field our resident child psychologist in training <laughs> to, to explain it and look if Ginny says that's how it went well must be true then that's what i think <laughs> So in terms of that, Kendall, like, I think, yeah, you know, that's what Ginny's purpose in terms of that scene in the bar, which I absolutely love, Mm. you know, it's supposed to fill in some of the plot holes. Yeah. Is it successful for you? Um, Yes and no. Probably more so 
more successful than not, I would say. Hmm. Um, like it's, it's, it's very obviously exposition and, yeah. you know, and try and the, the writers trying to let the audience know this is kind of what they're going for. And this is, <clears throat> this is why Jason is here or, you know, at that point, Ginny obviously doesn't know yet. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she has a very, you know, it's a very, very good theory. But the one thing for me about Jason in this film, just as, or just, or just as this, the setting of the whole thing, just because I feel like there isn't enough emphasis put on the fact that all of these camp counselors were murdered. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't really, for me, unless, I don't know, unless I just misinterpreted or miss. I don't know. Just, I just didn't think, you know, that there was just an, enough kind of like, yes, Jason's an urban legend, but like all of these, you know, young adults, these teenagers were murdered. Why are people not really kind of focusing on that? Like people don't seem to be really freaked out. I don't think there's enough emphasis on that. Right. Um, kind of for me, it felt like it was swept on, not sort of swept under the rug. A bit I inconsequential. Guess, a a little, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I don't think, yeah, I, I feel like they could have placed more emphasis upon that. And I think a really interesting way they could have maybe have done that as if Adrian King's Alice didn't, doesn't die at the start. Because, you know, at the end of the first one, maybe she's crazy, right? So right. what if she's the town yokel who's just like, you know. She's crazy Ralph. <laughs> yeah, she's crazy. Yeah, what if we're out of crazy Ralph and her are like, this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> team up to try and stop these counselors from returning to Crystal Lake. What like, an image! I, just, <laughs> I, just, I feel like, but not exactly like that. Like that's, yeah. I was kind of doing a bit there. But like, if she had have been this kind of presence throughout the film to kind of deter the kids, and then I don't know. I feel like they could have done something a bit more with that. But mm. I totally get why they killed her off in the opening because it's it's super effective. But yeah, I just I don't know. I feel like. There's a lot of potential with the story and a lot of potential to enhance it uh, and elevate it to something a bit greater. But back to Ginny, like she was probably one of my favorite characters in the film, if not mm. my favorite, just because, and I picked straight away, she was going to be the final girl because yeah. she was the, the most kind of, I don't know, she had the most sense about her common sense. She has intelligence, yeah. uh, very you know, kind of on top of her game kind of girl, really, I, I felt. And I love the fact that they give her this power to be the person theorizing this is why Jason yeah. might actually be still around and alive and what the psychology behind it. I think it's, yeah, I, and for the most part, like I said, I think it's really effective, really good. Yeah, I, I agree with you in terms of Amy Steele as Ginny. And I will put it out there that Ginny is my favorite final girl from the Friday the 13th franchise. Uh... I absolutely love Ginny. She also is my first final girl. So there is some sentiment there because I began watching the franchise from part two (laughs) when I was a teenager because they played on TV. Um, They played part two to eight in this like a marathon across several nights. Yeah. That's how I fell in love with Ginny and Jason at the same time. (laughs) That's cool. Nice. Yeah. But I think um, even with that aside, I think that Amy still is just wonderful in this. She's great. 
And I like that her character is, I think, the, the most fleshed out, really, out of out of the characters yeah. here. And, and look, let's be honest, she needs to be as the final girl. She's the one that we're with, we're rooting for all the way through. And because she is providing the explanation, whether you want to accept it or not, but she's providing the explanation of Jason being present or a possibility of him being present is significant. Mm. She's also not... I guess what we would paint and what is the stereotypical final girl. So even though she's one of the earliest examples of the final girl in slasher movies, because we're really beginning the craze here with her, she doesn't embody the stereotypical slasher girl or final girl really because she's incredibly street smart as well as book smart. And I'm sorry, if you're driving that car across who knows where (laughs) and it's just making that noise, you've got guts. (laughs) And even if you can't fix the car yourself, you've got the confidence to ask a random person on the side of the road to help you. Uh, That's my my thoughts on, on Ginny Field. But, you know, she's got this intelligence about her, a sense of worldliness about her, even though she's got a very girl next door look. She's got this very spunky, sporty, really cute look, I think. So she's got all Americana about her as well. And I love that she even talks back to Paul, uh, this person who is in charge of this whole facility when he's kind of like, you know, I was worried about you or, or, or whatever he says. And she just looks at him and just goes, bullshit, Paul. And just walks yeah. away. I love that. Me too. Me too. Like, especially in the, well, in the seventies, in the eighties, Girls don't talk like that to their boyfriends, to their partners, especially since Paul, yes, he is uptight, but he is still a nice guy. And the fact is that she speaks that way to him, but she's a nice girl too. Uh, There's something very authentic about Amy Steele as an actress, about the character of Ginny and the way that she fits into this world. Um, I absolutely adore her and could talk forever and forever about why Amy Steele is amazing (laughs) and why Ginny Field is absolutely amazing too. (laughs) But we've got other characters here. You can't have a final girl without your antagonist. So so our antagonist Mm. is the one and only Jason Voorhees. So why is Jason in this movie at all? Well, Friday the 13th was supposed to be once the first film did really well, an anthology series tended to not necessarily be related. Okay. So number one's made a lot of money. We've got to make number two. Um, um, what, what, what are we doing? What, what's going on? Uh, just bring that Jason guy. <laughs> just bring Jason as, as the killer in this one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it kind of lends to the anthology, doesn't it? Because it's not Mrs. Voorhees now. It's, it, it's her son. We can do that. And why not? (laughs) And they did. Yeah. (laughs) So a very handsome actor by the name of Warrington Gillette was cast as Jason and trained in New York and was really excited to, to play the role. The problem was he wasn't trained in stunt work and couldn't do the stunts of Jason. Okay. So Warrington Gillette, even though he is credited as Jason and really as the only Jason and for most most of the years following this movie was considered the only one who played Jason or primarily played Jason only plays Jason in the climax when we see him unmasked. So that's wow. portion is, is Warrington Gillette. And he does such a wonderful performance, but unfortunately 
he struggled with some of the other stunts. And this is where Steve Deskowitz comes in. And he's the one doing a lot of the work. He's the one in the final confrontation where um, he's fighting against Ginny with the pitchfork and the machete and, and all of that. And he broke four ribs during production. And oh, wow. yeah. And in the climax where uh, Ginny throws the machete down at him and he, you know, blocks it with the ax, um, mm. he kind of put his hand up and that's a real machete and sliced his finger. Yeah. Oh, 13, Lordy. 13 stitches uh, required, but he went to hospital, got them stitched up and like, let's keep going. <laughs> oh, wow. Why we need stunt people as, yeah. Uh, but credit to both Steve and Warrington. I really like the performances that they deliver here. Yeah, me too. There is a moment that I particularly love involving Jason because it's one that you won't see really anywhere else in the series. And this is where, even though we suggest supernatural forces, but we suggest a very human side to him. And that's when Ginny attacks him with the chainsaw. And you actually see his fear as he's cowering and backing away from her. And I think that that is beautifully performed, especially because... Again, Steve Dash is, you know, is, is trained in in stunts and is an expert at these. So I sensed, you know, he feels like, yep, this is safe and rah, rah, rah. But that performance for me was just, I could actually feel Jason's fear there. And I guess yeah. arousing his anger even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you particularly have a favourite Jason moment in this one? Oh, did I have a favourite moment? I don't know. I, I really liked him just as a presence throughout Mm. this entire film. Because as much as this film for me was just like a, you know, basic kind of thread of a story, just connecting one kill after another, which, you know, I mean, that's basically the slasher genre in a nutshell for the most part. And that's fine. But yeah, the, the moments where he makes an appearance on screen where he's stalking his prey or where Mm. he's launching his attack. Like I just... I just, I don't know, I really, I really enjoy those shots of his legs when he walks around and just, it just yeah. gives me chills straight away, you know, I, and yeah, but I really liked, I really liked the touch of towards the end of the film when Ginny puts on, I can't believe she does, but puts on <laughs> Pamela's sweater and pretends, and it's so, it's so cool. I really like that, that she actually went for it and was like, she, she's pretending to be his mother and that one eye is all you can see of him yeah. through that sheet and it just spoke so much to me like you can you could see the confusion mm. the he's trying to figure out what's happening what's going on oh my god is it really my my mother is she really back is she alive is this oh my god but you know obviously that doesn't last for long but i just at that moment i really i really enjoyed and kind of brought some depth i think to the story which was needed yeah yeah and what did you think about jason's aesthetic because this isn't how he's most known to look like uh that comes a bit later but it's it's a look taken from the horror movie the town that dreaded sundown and yeah so which is a, a killer in a small town and he has the sack over his head Mm-hmm. I like this look for Jason. Like, don't get me wrong. The, yeah. the look that we know and love is iconic and I love it. But I really like that he started this way. I, I, I chose this kind of nice little evolution. Yeah. Character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, when Peter Parker in, in Spider-Man Homecoming, like he has his basic outfit. Yes. That's just, you know, something he's thrown together. And like, here's Jason 
in this situation where he, I mean, he at least has some awareness of the way he looks. Yes. That he, he wants to conceal himself, like, yeah. which is so interesting to kind of think about. But, well, it, su- um, it, it suggests that, you know, because we know that he has disfigurements because we've seen that in part one. And yeah. so he would have been bullied as a child and he carries that burden with him. And again, yeah. reinforces why his mother is so important to him because she would have been the only one that loved him. And Ginny hints at this as well. But yeah, yeah and I find the sack so terrifying. I think it's such it a is. scary mask. Well, yeah, it's like I said I, as well with just, I love the fact that all you can see is just that one eye of his. Yeah. I think it, it's super effective. It's very well done. Yeah. And it takes a lot to actually convey uh, some thoughts and, and emotion through one eye. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, no, I think, I think um, Steve Dash does that in, in such, a, such a wonderful way. Mm-hmm. In terms of the counselors in training (laughs) yes Uh, again i feel like that this is a movie that focuses more on the dynamics of these kids more than them as individuals we get some insights into into some more than others for example the one of the first things that we learn about ted is that he is the he's the joke star of this film of this story and of these of these this these character dynamics and he speaks extraordinarily fast (laughs) as well as well um i only know what his gags are because i've watched his scenes subtitled in the past (laughs) so now i can laugh when he has a gag (laughs) that's brilliant But yeah, so in terms of the jokester in this movie, we've got Stu Cherno as Ted. What were your thoughts on him? I really liked him. He kind of had a charm to him <laughs> that was, uh, you know, different to the, and I'm forgetting his name, the, jo- the, the jokester from the first film. Yes. I, yes. He, he was a bit more of a not so great guy, but kind <laughs> of like, yeah. But then in, in this film, Ted, I don't know, there's just something about him that was just like, it's sort of endearing in a way. Like he was just, he, he was nice. He came across as really nice, really likable. And the little pranks he was playing, I don't know. Like they, did, they didn't offend me. They didn't upset me. Like, he yeah. Only really I offended, I... Um, he only offended Jeff and Sandra at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Which was really funny. <laughs> that was really, yeah, I really liked that. It was really great. Yeah. And I, I really like Stu Chana's performance as well and lucky for him yes. he gets out unscathed and uh we, but so that's that was really good but i would have liked to have seen more of ted i yeah i i enjoyed him yeah well he is uh one of the very fortunate few that mm-hmm. never comes across jason in a jason movie and yeah who would have known that being an irresponsible alcoholic would pay off in a slasher yeah. <laughs> usually does not work no. <laughs> It was an interesting choice, though, to actually have one of the principal characters, really, in this ensemble. Yeah. We know his name, we get his personality, we, we get a sense of him. To just dismiss him towards the end, not dismiss him, to be dismissive, but to say, you get an out. You actually yeah. get to survive this. And, yeah. you know, besides some grief that he will have down the track for losing his friends, because I love his relationship with Paul, like they're quite supportive. Like you've got a, very, you've got a, a straight man and, and the four guy comedy act between the two. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he never encounters Jason. It's an interesting choice. And mm-hmm. 
it's one that we don't really see in slasher movies. And it's one that we won't see in this franchise at all because this movie will have the highest number of survivors for a Friday the 13th movie. <laughs> and that's because so many of them are getting tanked at the pub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I just, that was one of the things I, I mean, we'll talk about the ending later on, I'm sure. But like one Absolutely. of the things I didn't, I didn't like about it was the fact that we don't see them returning and mm. finding out what happens and where are all these other counselors, where have they all gone? And, you know, yeah. I guess, Oh, I guess they're just having a night on, you know, night in this pub and having a great time. And that's, that's that like that we don't return to them. And I was fully expecting, you know, because this is a slasher film and you're right, we don't see this very often. Like yeah. I was fully expecting Ted to come back uh, like he was going to rock up at the camp and get an axe to the back of it or something. I was fully expecting it, but yeah. nope. Well, we saw that at the first movie when uh, when Steve Christie, who was, you know, opening Crystal Lake, mm. had mm-hmm. to leave the kids to go into town, was at a diner. And so he's away while they're starting to get picked off one by one. And then mm. he interrupts the killer in that movie and yes. meets a grisly fate himself. So mm-hmm. it's, I don't know, like, I kind of like that it, it challenges the conventions that it's actually setting up because we're still at the very beginning of establishing slasher film conventions. Halloween yes. and the first Friday the 13th establish them, but you're still kind of at an era where people aren't 100% expecting conventions. So it's kind of still challenging what's there, trying out new things. We've got Jeff and Sandra as well, who are our couple. (laughs) (laughs) Who are are fun kids. They're adventurous. and, 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 you know, it's Sandra who suggests that they go explore the uh, forbidden part of (laughs) crystal lake (laughs) look for me there isn't all that much to them but i feel like that they are likable screen presences like i you know i like that you know we see them at the beginning they're our introduction really we're going along with them to to crystal lake and they go off and explore and we're not sure if they're going to meet you know a grisly fate uh, as they're exploring Uh, then they get reprimanded by Paul for being in trouble with the deputy sheriff there. And Mm. essentially it's them going into that area where the camp was seals their fate, but it's not immediate. Unlike how it normally is in a horror movie. It's like, okay, because you've done that, the consequence will ultimately be your demise down the track. Yeah. Coupled with one of the more famous reasons to die in a horror movie and that's because you're having <laughs> premarital sex. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, we've got the, the the shish kebab killing there which is quite oh, just quite famous. That was great. Yeah, I was like a, I like that. It was a really good thing. That's a lot of power. That's a lot mm-hmm. of power, you know. Um if we thought about having the spear going up through through the mattress to kill Jack, played by the beautiful Kevin Bacon in the first movie, yeah. took power. This one, probably even more so. <laughs> yeah, yep, 100%. If I actually had to have a favourite couple in this movie, it would, for me, be Vicky and Mark. Me too. So your thoughts on Vicky and Mark, Kendall? Oh, God, they never got a chance. <laughs> no. They never had a chance. No, they were great. I really, I really liked them. They both had 
great chemistry, Lauren Marie Taylor and uh, Tom McBride, just natural on screen together. I mean, I was so, <laughs> I was actually kind of annoyed at the start of the film when, you know, we're seeing the, the establishing shots of the training grounds and, mm. you know, all the counsellors are kind of coming in and then you see, you see Mark in his wheelchair and I was like, oh no, this movie's going to kill a, a, a paraplegic. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh, okay, here we go. But I really liked the the way he was written on top of the way he was performed because especially the relationship that was blossoming between Mark and Vicky, like Vicky was just, she didn't see the wheelchair. No, she um, didn't care about it. She didn't care at all. No. And and their, their little conversations that they had about his, you know, what happened to him and, mm. you know, the fact that he's, he can't go into town and have drinks and all of that. And she doesn't care. Which like, she's yeah. like happy to stay with him and be with him because he's a nice guy. His wheelchair doesn't define him. And no. for a film of this, I don't know, like low, low budget, mm-hmm. sec- second, second film in a slasher series, like just... That was one of the high points for me, I think. Yeah. It, was, it was very progressive, but yeah, I, I loved the two of them together. They were great. And you know what, Kendall? We could argue, if we want to be really cynical, we could argue that Mark is only in a wheelchair so that he can have the kill that he does, right? <laughs> like, like, we could argue that's the only reason. But you said it so well there. The way they've written him and the way he's performed. Because... Mm there's not a lot of positive representation of people with disabilities in horror movies. No. Probably the main one before this one that comes to mind is Franklin and Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm-hmm. is extraordinarily annoying. Mm. And it's not because he's in a chair. It is because he is just annoying, yeah. <laughs> right? He's just so annoying, mm. like super annoying. And and, <laughs> I, and I believe the actor who played Franklin in that movie wanted to stay in character as much as possible. So in the end, the cast even hated him. It's <laughs> <laughs> that annoying. No. But we don't get that with Mark. He's athletic. No. Mm-hmm. He's handsome. He's yeah. polite. He's really charming gets along well with the guys as well as the girls. And I think that that does say a lot about Tom McBride, the actor. And one Mm. thing that for me is incredibly magical is you can tell that Tom and Lauren Marie really liked one another's company. They got along so well. I sense that really for everyone in this movie I had that feel for the first film that Mm. these actors like being together because these characters like being together. You can see it. It's very authentic. They're good Mm -hmm. kids. And even in this movie, even though Scott is contentious, (laughs) right? Yep. Ultimately we've got another good group of kids. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're they're not really like, I mean, Scott does that thing with Terry that is stereotypical and it is very dated now about how a guy will get a girl's attention and make her like him. You know, that treat him mean, keep him keen mentality. Again, outdated, but it was prevalent in the movie. So in in context, I guess he's a good guy, (laughs) right? Because she, she, you know, she, I feel like she does like him, doesn't like his tactics, but she does like him. But yeah. 
my point in summarizing about all of these characters as being good kids and there's being an authentic type of rapport and relationship with them. But for me, it is, yeah, Lauren Marie Taylor and Tom McBride, especially, I feel, yeah. because we can see that this camp it has not been designed for wheelchair usage. The only ramp no. I see is going from the deck into the main house. Yes. So Mike would need a lot of support and help to move about. And whilst yeah. he's quite independent, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but again, this is not my first time watching this film, so I tend okay. to look at the backgrounds. But when we very first see Vicky and Mike, they are together in the background, getting ready to join everyone else while Paul's about to make his big speech. Yeah. You could see that she actually begins to try to push his wheelchair to, to, yes, to guide yes. him there. And he sort of politely dismisses her in saying, no, I, you know, I've got this myself, but they're always together. It's really lovely. It's really, really lovely. Yeah. It's a reflection on how the actors were behind the scenes. And there's a gorgeous quote from Lauren Marie Taylor, which is published in the exceptional book, Crystal Lake Memories. And I just wanted to read it out because Tom is no longer with us and she had a wonderful relationship with him. And she speaks, as does the whole cast, incredibly lovingly about Mm. him. But again, because they spent so much time together on screen and you can see this beautiful, genuine relationship, I I just wanted to read her reflections on Yeah, please. And she had actually said that after the film, I used to see Tom at commercial calls and I actually went on a couple of auditions with him where we were supposed to play husband and wife. And it was hysterical because after all those years, we still had an instant rapport. Looking back at the making of part two, I sometimes think that maybe Tom even felt sorry for me because I was such a dork. There was such a purity about our relationship, even in this little horror movie. He always wanted to be true to being an actor. It wasn't like, oh, here's Tom sitting in a wheelchair playing make-believe. It was almost intimidating to somebody like me. Being only 17 years old, I learned so much from Tom. I will always miss him. And I just sense that that's so reflective of their relationship way back when. And you can see it on screen. So I have such a soft spot for Mark and Vicky. I adore them. They're they're the couple you just wanted. (laughs) You wanted them to get together. Yes. It does make their fates quite cruel, really. Yeah, really. So in terms of the kills (laughs) in this movie, (laughs) Mm. I would actually say that Mark has the most famous one in this particular film. Okay. And I would argue that Vicky has the saddest death in this movie and probably for me, the entire franchise. That would be my my take on it. And because the nicest people have to die the most grisly, don't they? Because that gives us our impact. But Mark's demise is absolutely iconic because it's such a wonderful gag, let's be honest. We take emotion aside <laughs> out of it. It's yeah. such a great gag, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Vicky herself, because she's one of those people who when confronted with somebody slowly approaching her with a knife and you get that angle of that blood bruised thumbnail and it's just hovering, hovering, and it just hits. It's so impactful because you see she's frozen with fear 
And that's what makes it incredibly sad and creepy and disturbing. So, you know, whilst we do go all out in these movies, Mark's death, especially, for example, that amazing prosthetic work of the, the, the machete across his, his face and then the yeah. tumble down the stairs. It's ones like Vicky's one where there's so much suggested and you don't actually really see. You only get a hint of blood coming out of her mouth after yeah. impact. That's so, yeah. yeah, so impactful. But yeah, Kendall, were there any particular kills or practical effects that stood out to you? Well, just to jump on, on Mark and Vicky again for a second, I really liked the fact that they kind of subverted the expectation of who was going to die first. Yeah. Because you really assume it's Vicky because as soon as she leaves to go, you know, freshen herself up and all that, the camera is very close on her, very intimate, and at almost certain shots do kind of look like she's being followed, especially when she goes to the car looking for a hairbrush and yeah. yeah, it's all, it's all very suspenseful. And then, you know, we cut back to Mark and then he bites it and you're yeah. just like, Whoa, you're not expecting it. So that was super effective. Yeah. In terms of, I don't know. I feel like the practical effects with, in, in regards to Scott's death were, were quite impressive. Mm. We don't see too much, you know, there's not really a close up on the destruction that yeah. has befallen him, but you see enough and you get Terry's great reaction Mm. Um, when she finally turns him around yeah so that that was really really cool but yeah I don't know I don't know do you have any other favorite kills Wayne well one of them that I do like is speaking of Terry I like the fact that we don't actually see Terry's demise I like that she just turns around and it's this epic scream yeah like I think that that's quite well done because it's some what you don't see can be more scary than what you do very true Um, and I think that also suggests the, the impact of Vicky's death as well in mm-hmm. terms of that. I mean, we've got Jeff and Sandra, she's kebabbed in, in the bed. Like it's, yeah, it, it's great. It's so well done. Um, you know, you yeah. get that final, that little gasp of, of shock <laughs> and then it happens. But yeah, across the board though, I think the practical effects in this movie are really good. Yeah. Um, and know. when also when crazy, uh, crazy Ralph dies, yeah, that, that was super impressive. Just, and just, I was like getting all, whoa, this is like, <laughs> that's a lot. Like I was expecting his head to fully come off. And I feel yeah. like if that movie, this movie had been made now, his head would have come off, but yeah. that was, that was good. And then also in the beginning, when, when Alice is killed, mm. that ice pick to her temple. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Brutal. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Alice because I think it's time to actually talk about Alice. And again, one of the contentious parts of this movie is not only Alice's death, but the fact that Jason travels (laughs) and finds her and kills her. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know about that. Yeah, so well, what I'll do actually, Kendall, is let me give you, let me get your full thoughts on the whole prologue, really, uh, in terms of Alice, and then I'll give you the behind the scenes insight as to why it was so. Because okay, I, I don't want to, I don't want to filter your initial impression. Because let's be honest, you shouldn't have to know behind the scenes reasoning for things because oh, no. movie has to stand up by itself. So yeah, so the bookends of this movie is contentious. Let's start at the beginning. <laughs> Great. I've been I've been dying to talk about the beginning. Oh my god. Okay. So (laughs) yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about the beginning. 
Oh, all right. Where, did, <laughs> where to start? Um, mostly, I, I was not, I was not as impressed with Adrian King's performance mm. in this one. The writhing on the bed in between going inside her, the, her reliving and dreaming or having a nightmare about, you know, what she experienced. And, you know, we're getting the flashbacks of the first film. Like I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't buy it at all. It was just so, I didn't, I don't know. She, I feel like she could have done better, but that's, that's just my personal opinion. But on those flashbacks, that was such an extensive revisit mm. to the first film for me. And I think it was too long. Yeah. I really feel like they could have condensed that, shown quick flashes of the main moments that, are, you know, affected her the most clearly, like her confrontation mm. with Mrs. Voorhees and, mm. uh, and, J- and Jason, especially at the end. And then the, you know, and then the final scene when she's like, but he's still out there. Yeah. I feel like you could have ramped up the tension by really condensing that into just short beats. And because usually in, in films like that trope of the person having the nightmare about what they've yeah. been traumatized yeah. by, it's usually a quick 10 second sequence. It's not really drawn out over like almost mm. 10 minutes. Yeah. I don't know. For me, for me, it just didn't, it didn't really work. But what I did like about the opening sequence is the fact that after she wakes up, nothing really happens for again, so long, but mm. it's, I think it's really good mm. because you know, we've seen the footsteps across walking across the street. You know, we haven't, that's in the back of your mind and yeah. you're watching this. And then it's like, when we were talking about Friday the 13th part one, how the, the camera angles are really giving you this stalkerish perspective, like it could be Jason. And there's yeah. so many little moments in this opening scene where the camera follows her in the hallway and out again. And, you know, and it just really looks like, you know, she's going to turn around and Jason's going to be there, especially in that when she's in the shower and mm. that happens. And so to have her be basically killed almost out of nowhere because it gets to a point where you've kind of gone, Oh, okay. Maybe she's going to be all right. Like you start to relax a little, I think. And then she opens the fridge and (laughs) there's mum's head and, and and then there's an ice pick. And I, I was like, Oh yes. I literally, like I didn't jump, jump, but it affected me. And I, I really liked it. So. Yeah. No, I thought I thought it was really well done. I liked the the point of view shaky camera work and again it, it yeah. sort of subverts our expectations because when a camera shakes like that that's supposed to be, you know, another person's point of view. So theoretically, sure. well that's Jason's point of view. No, it's ours. We're in the room with her. We're feeling that yeah. tension. And Adrian I believe was really given not necessarily free reign, but said, okay, walk around the house. Like that was her direction. Improvise okay. this phone call or <laughs> like, it was not, you know, a lot of, uh, most of it was just on her on the spot, come in and do this. And I yeah, think okay. she, she does handle that really well for, for, for what she's given. And, you know, it's supposed to be two months after her trauma of killing Mrs. Voorhees. And so she's still a bit shaken. I do, I do like that, that she, yeah is on edge that she has gone through some trauma. We see flashes to her artwork there that she's trying to be to process what has happened. So I don't know, maybe she could have gone down the road of crazy Ralph, (laughs) but um, you know, but, but it was not to be. And to some degree, I'm glad because I think, you know, when you reduce a protagonist like that, it's a little bit disappointing. Um, It's actually a tactic that will happen in the Wolf Creek franchise uh, without giving too many spoilers about Wolf Creek away. But, (laughs) you know, that franchise is, is made up of films and a TV series. 
Um, mm. So, you know, if you fall in love with the character and then realize they're not quite right down the track, that is heartbreaking. <laughs> Actually really heartbreaking. So the question is, why is Adrian King only in it, say, at the beginning and why is she killed off? That was probably more her choice not to be in the film for too long. Okay. The reason being that the first film was a huge hit and we're talking 1980, not the number of safeguards for public figures back then. And right. so she went through an experience where she was stalked by a fan oh, no. and it was quite confronting for her. So she didn't want to be all out there, I suppose, and, and be the star of the movie again and, and go through it all because that was an ordeal unto itself. But she agreed yeah. to come in for the beginning of that and get killed off. So that is unfortunate that that's the reason why Adrian yeah. isn't in this film for that long, because let's face it, she could have not been in it at all and maybe come back later. It could yeah. be a thing, but you know, look, this is how they went. And I feel like in the context of this story, as much as I do really like Alice as a protagonist, I think it works for the story in terms of avenging the woman who killed his mother sort of settles the score. It ends the chapter. And then the arrival of Paul and his cohort reignites it almost to keep things protected. So again, the backstory is unfortunate, but at least in terms of the context, what she's used for works really well. In terms of Alice's death, that looks quite painful. (laughs) We're going to really begin in this franchise with Jason's chief adversary, and that is the MPAA in the (laughs) United States, who will dog this series for so, so long and will impact it. So this movie is not an exception to it. You can actually find the extended kills on almost every single kill in this movie. Whoa. Yeah. So just about every single kill got trimmed in this film. And that that makes sense. Because I I remember during the scene with the shish kebab happening, I feel like there was definitely an abrupt cut that kind of didn't fit. I felt like that in that moment, we were going to get a big reveal of them being skewered to the bed, but then yeah. it's kind of, kind of got glossed over a bit. So this makes, this makes sense that you're yeah. saying. Well, even with Alice, so that looks painful, that pick to the, to the temple yeah. Uh, yeah. in the full cut of that. And it's only a few seconds that we're cutting from each of these kills, but in terms of Alice's Jason will turn her around a little and we see the pick coming out from her face, from the other side of her nose very slightly yeah before he sort of drops her and there's some other examples i mean i think we could tell that when mike falls down the stairs he'll fall to the very end instead it Mm -hmm. freezes and flashes to white i kind of like that for mike though i don't necessarily think that all cuts are bad i think less is more in terms of that because yeah we don't want to show too much because it's clearly not tom mcbride in there as it as it goes down the steps um and the fact that he gets a flash to white symbolizing he goes to heaven i like that (laughs) because mark is just lovely and he's absolutely pure he and vicky forever together forever now (laughs) absolutely love but yeah but all of them got a bit of a trim one of the interesting ones is actually scott's death because i don't know if you noticed this kendall but when 
Terry turns him around. There's yeah. not really any blood there, even though not he's got a whole lot. No. Even though he's gotten his throat cut. And yeah. one thing that I was actually looking because I look at films even films that I know really well, when I'm about to review them for this podcast, I'll look at them as critically as possible because that's our job. Yes. But the one thing I noticed about, about Scott was that even when he had his back to us, like that gash, th- there should be blood everywhere. But we don't even see blood dripping from his neck before Terry approaches him. There's, no, there's no. kind of nothing there. She turns mm. him around and, and sees his sliced neck. In the original full kill... And this is what I could gather because the quality of this film isn't that great because it's 40 years old, right? Yeah. Is that once his throat is cut, we hold on that for a while and essentially his whole face is drenched with blood. So by the time that Terry approaches him, why isn't there any blood dripping? Because essentially he's been emptied of it. And that is just so impactful. Um, yeah. So yeah, that would have been in terms of if you like your blood and gore. <laughs> I think too, uh, and especially you, Kendall, based on how you feel about Scott, I'm sure you would have enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> Justice. Take that, you and your slingshot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, literally. I love just love that line where where Terry's like, "Ought to let you hang, you pervert." <laughs> Said every well, woman ever, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the other kills that I actually do like, and this one didn't really get trimmed that much, is the police officer, Deputy Winslow, played by Jack mm-hmm. Marks. Mm-hmm. The hammer to the back oh. of the head. Oh, no. I think out of all the kills, that's the one I could feel. Yeah. Looks painful. It's Bad. instant. It's literally skull shattering. It's brain yeah. piercing. Yeah, like that one I think gives me shivers <laughs> more than others. It makes me go, oh, like absolutely. Especially because it happened, it happened like so early, I feel, in the film and in broad yeah. daylight. Yes. Like, yeah. Such yeah, a brutal, yeah. like such a brutal one so early on. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. There's the advantage that it's in this secluded space. We get an idea about how Jason has been able to conceal himself from the world or at least the world that he inhabits um, Mm. in that wonderful shack. I love the set design of that shack so much. Me too. It was great. Yeah. It looks amazing. Like I, yeah, Mm -hmm. particularly really, really like that one, but we've got the cuts and the trims to the kills. And there has been discussion recently that a full cut of Friday the 13th part two is actually being made available. So all of these full kills are being reinstated into the Great. movie. So Good, that'll, so I think so too, because, you know, the ratings board decided, well, this is what you need for an R rating. And look, you want your movie to be distributed and you want as many people to see it because these movies are about making money. So we will do it. Another one of Jason's main enemies are film critics. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you know, we have to think about the time that it was made. There's no internet. You know, yeah, people do read reviews in newspapers, but let's face it, we're more likely to sit in front of the TV and watch movie reviews. And mm-hmm. the most popular, the most vocal, the most watched, the most respected, and so they should be, I will say. Yes. Film critics in the United States are Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. 
This is another film uh, now that is very much of an unpleasant discovery. It's an unpleasantly, absolutely reprehensible little sleaze pit of a movie <laughs> named Friday the 13th Part 2. And of course, this is a sequel to last uh, summer's movie, Friday the 13th. And it's a continuation of the senseless, gruesome, violent murders we saw in that first film. When we did our special edition of sneak previews on movie violence directed against women a few months ago, Friday the 13th was one of the movies we attacked. Well, Friday the 13th Part 2 isn't just against women, it's against everybody. <laughs> the movie's distributor, Paramount Pictures, isn't providing scenes for television reviews, nor would they let us make an excerpt from the film to show you. Maybe they're not very proud of this movie, and maybe they shouldn't be very proud of this movie, but they sure are advertising it heavily. And that's the strategy behind films like this. They saturate television with a violent ad campaign, hope to make their money quickly before word gets around on how scummy the movie really is. It exists only to show killing and mutilation. Friday the 13th Part 2 is a disheartening and depressing movie because it contains an absolutely negative view of human nature. It's just a series of teenagers who come on screen, mm -hmm. say a few words, and then they're hacked to pieces. Mm -hmm. Among the movie's low points is a kid in a wheelchair who has his head hacked open by a machete, and a young couple who are both impaled by the same spear. This isn't a movie, it's a cinematic geek show. It seems to be made by and for people with no cheerfulness, no hope, no trust in human nature. I think that's well said, and uh, I can only add that, yeah, when the machete went into the head of the kid in the wheelchair, mm -hmm. that's about when I gave up on the picture. Uh, depressing is the, the key word in this discussion. I walked into the theater, I sat there, I thought, gee, the first one made so much money, maybe for part two they decided to spend a little money, spend a little talent, have a little imagination. The movie is so cynical. It's simply a series of mutilations and murders. This movie yeah. is made by people who hate movie audiences. Well, the other thing that I can think of is I had the same expectations. I said, well, let's see, maybe they'll go another way. Mm -hmm. Maybe they won't have anybody killed. Wouldn't that be clever? Wouldn't that be challenging, fresh? No, no. Bang, bang, bang. You know, they didn't like the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they hated this one even more. Yeah. They... <laughs> did <laughs> especially mr ebert yes wow. and you know siskel agreed that it was a depressing movie yeah. and roger ebert said that this movie was made by and for people with no cheerfulness no hope no trust in human nature <laughs> brutal. and i'm so brutal. look I'm reflecting on Mr. Ebert's feedback because he's talking about me, Kendall. Yeah. <laughs> Am I not sounding cheerful at the moment? <laughs> no, that is the most uncheerful laugh I've ever heard. What are you talking about? So, Kendall, your thoughts on the critical feedback at the time when really let's be honest yeah. there's less slasher movies to compare it to because yes halloween and the first friday the 13th film triggered all of these rip-offs and quick cash grabs so by the time part two comes out there are a lot to compare to this is true mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. definitely not as much as there are now <laughs> you know 40 years later right yeah yeah but what are your thoughts on siskel and ebert's uh, review of, of this movie <laughs> Well, I feel like it was very sweet of them that they seem to both have high-ish expectations going in. Like, <laughs> they had their hopes up. They were, they were confident that maybe, given the success of the first film, yeah. that this one would then turn out to be 
you know, a little bit different, have a, uh, you know, a, a recognizable cast, you yeah. know, a higher budget, all of this stuff. And then <laughs> for it to turn out the way it has. And just, I loved, I loved Roger Ebert's rant and how impassioned he was. He really but, was. <laughs> oh my God, it was so impassioned. Like the film yeah. offended him so deeply. I, yeah, no, I make no secret of it. Even movies that I absolutely love, and if I 100% disagree with a critic, I love nothing more than hearing a film critic who is so good at their job, like how mm. Siskel and Ebert are. But I yes. love hearing them rubbish a movie. I don't ask me why. I just get my kicks. I just, because <laughs> you're right. I love how passionate they hate particular movies. I just, I think it's, it's gorgeous. <laughs> Like I, I, I just kind of love how, how, how Ebert had this just rant going and then as soon as it cut to Siskel, he, he, he almost couldn't stomach the words because Roger just summed it up so perfectly how he feels. You know, he instantly agrees. It's just so funny how exasperated they both were and how disappointed. And I mean, look, yes, this film is not a great film, uh, you know, overall, but there are some good moments and I feel like for some reason Roger Ebert kind of maybe let his personal feelings about the film maybe affect his critical judgment of it because I think <laughs> yeah. I think he's a little too harsh especially the, the fact that he says you know no trust in human nature uh, <laughs> okay mate this is I, I really would like to hear his thoughts on the room then that's what he's saying about this one <laughs> yeah I, I do feel that especially when it comes to these movies it's like relax it's like it's funny yeah. because you know and and they and these two guys and a lot of critics do like the horror genre it's not like they rubbish all horror movies this is tailored for a specific audience and i think kendall you and i speak about horror a lot we we enjoy yes. the genre so much <laughs> and the subgenre of, of slasher a lot so we do have our expectations. Um, I probably give a lot of slashers more of a free pass than they deserve because I enjoy them so much. But I mean, yeah. I think we just go in there to have fun. And if it does what it should do, yeah. and if it delivers a good story and characters that you do actually care about and, and a great antagonist and a strong protagonist, well, I mean, does the job then, doesn't it? You know, the, the argument then is, has this movie delivered? I know that you and I will fall on different sides, whether this movie has delivered, but we're going to get to that shortly. <laughs> we before, will. <laughs> before we get to that, let's talk about the other really contentious moment of this movie, the ending. Talk to me. <laughs> I didn't like the ending. Okay, at, go for it. At all. I mean, look, I enjoyed the fact that they were kind of paying homage to their own twist Mm. of Jason not being dead and yeah. coming back. And especially a slow motion tracking shot of him coming to bring the final girl down and finally end her, for lack of a better word. Yeah, so I kind of I, I kind of enjoyed that a little bit. I was so happy that Muffin survived because when they showed <laughs> us that when they showed us that poor that poor dog that did not have such a nice fate earlier in the film I was like oh muffin I was I got really upset because I can't handle animal death in the film I really can't I need um, to ask then Kendall I need to ask yes however the gag that accompanies that we see the dog which is sad we see a dead dog we think it's muffin yeah. and then we cut to the barbecue with hot dogs yeah <laughs> <laughs> barbecue sausages I'm sorry that gets me every time 
I did you did you too. laugh at least? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh wow, okay. Yeah. They went there. <laughs> they went there. They went there. No, it was good. I, I love that gag so much. Yeah. It's a classic. Like it's been done to death, but it's a classic <laughs> gag and it always lands for me, definitely. Yeah. Um so yeah, I was really glad to see Muffin return. But in terms of like you know, uh, I mean, the, the final conflict between Paul and, and Ginny and, and Jason, you know, there's a, there's a fight that happens between Paul and, mm. and Jason and, you know, and Jason kind of overpowers Paul, but you don't, you kind of assume that maybe he's died, but you don't see it, they don't show it and Ginny yeah. gets away and then, you know, the whole she impersonates the mum thing happens and that's really, really interesting and I'm not even thinking about Paul, but then all of a sudden Paul's back and I'm like, oh, sick, all right, he's still alive, that's great one couple will make it out of this film mm. and yeah and and jason looks like he's dead but i'm like no he's not of course knowing there's a you know a million other films following this one like we have i have the benefit of hindsight in this case but even at the time i would have been like nah yeah there's no way the way because he's such a like we've been saying he's such a supernatural figure like yeah. that's not good that's not going to cut it you've got to you know remove the head from the body like really <laughs> um, like mum so, yes exactly exactly so yeah so i mean i was glad that yeah that paul came back and and they were able to you know temporarily defeat him and then i like the as i said the slow motion shot but then he pulls her out and then we cut to Ginny on a gurney being taken mm. away by an ambulance where's paul what the fuck happened to Paul? Why is Paul not there? She's calling out to him. No one is acknowledging her cries for Paul. Where are the other counselors? Uh, are they still drinking in town? What are they? Why is no one there? And then it's basically the end of the film, you know, just after that, there's no kind of, it was such a quick resolution that yeah. barely works. And I, and it, it kind of, yeah, it offended me a little because I'm like, come on movie, you can put more effort into this like why are these things why are we having all these kind of loose ends going on and i haven't seen part three so i don't know if maybe paul comes back or something or you know or or or, yeah i don't know but i i just i was just like "Mm," you know you were going so well and yes i didn't love this film i didn't hate it either but then the ending happened i was just like "Mm, come on it's quite abrupt isn't it it is i I hated it yeah Yeah. i didn't like the abruptness like i really felt they could have had why was just why wasn't Paul there? Wayne, yep. please. <laughs> what are your what are what are your thoughts? Are you, are you as emphatic as I am about this, or or I don't know? Do you have a different opinion? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I'm going to try now to reflect on when I first saw this movie because I think okay. that's probably a fairer response because you're right. I yes. have seen the other films, so I remember really liking it in terms of when Ginny puts on the the jumper. And um, psychologizes Jason and and, yeah. and tricks him that little bit, and then yeah. he realizes what's going on. Paul comes in to save the day, but ultimately it's really Ginny who saves him, uh, yeah. which I like, and again, why yeah. she's one of the, my favorites. So <laughs> that worked really well. Things yep. calm down. We go into the cabin. There's the suggestion of tension, 
when someone or something is at the door and they've got the, the broken pitchfork, the image of Ginny holding the pitchfork in front of her, waiting for Jason, is like the most iconic shot of this movie. Um, okay. Because it's, yeah, it's, it's like the final confrontation. And then we're faked out because it's Muffin. So yeah. in that moment, we put aside that what? There was another dog that looked exactly like Muffin <laughs> running around the yeah. area. And where's that person's owner? And, you know, where's the owner and all of this? So, you know, we put things aside again, suspension of disbelief. We need it. Otherwise you don't get past the first two minutes of this movie, no. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't care because we're safe. We've been faked out. It's really well manipulative, right? <laughs> because we're now safe because it's a cute dog. It's cool, yeah. you know, and, and, and her name is Muffin. Like, everything. Yeah. There's, the bow is still in, in, yeah. at the top of her head. Everything is cute. Mm-hmm. Now, it can't end that way. We know that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we feel so safe and calm. And then smash. <laughs> and you've got that loud noise of the glass breaking. You've got Ginny screaming. You've got these wonderful angles of Warrington Gillette as Jason. And then we cut and Ginny is taken away in an ambulance. So I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, if we saw Ginny and Paul taken away into the ambulance, that would have worked a lot better for you or maybe for most people because we go, well, we know Paul's fate. Maybe we don't need to know Jason's fate. If these two are alive, then Jason's clearly dead. You know, that might have some resolve. So in saying that we could argue Ginny's alive. So who we don't see has died because maybe Paul has been killed in the fight, trying to save Ginny. Jason returns as this mythology, or maybe she killed him off. But we do go back to his cabin and we yeah. zoom in and we see bodies and we've got Mrs. Voorhees' head. So when I first saw the film, I liked the ending because I loved the scare of Jason through the window. Like it it's made, good. it was an effective seat jumper for me. Mm. And because it was an effective seat jumper and Ginny was okay, I kind of really forgave any other misgivings or really was focusing on those positives that didn't really bother me that much. Mm -hmm. So what I'll suggest, and I'm not saying that this was the intention at all, but what I'll suggest is that we perhaps go back to Jason's shack at the end into the room where all the bodies are laying there because that's Jason's point of view returning and maybe with Paul's body. Right. Okay. So you have That's to a feel- suggestion. That's a suggestion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so to be per- think- perfectly honest, that's the first time I've thought about it to that that's degree. Good. Yeah. First time. Okay. Yeah. No, that's good. That's really yeah. good. Like, do you think that was the, um, you know, the, the director's intent, like to kind of leave it up to the audience's imagination a little bit? No, I, I, to be honest, I don't think they thought about it as yeah. much. And to me, that's, yeah. that's a curious choice. Because especially if we look at the first film and a lot of horror movies that there are ends tied up. And if there is a so-called loose end, it's to hint at something more sinister. You kind of like the ending of the omen. You know what I mean? Like that's a gorgeous ending that we're like, Oh wow. 
what happens next? We'll never know type thing. But we don't need to because the twist and resolve is so well done. It's not so well done here. And I don't think that Steve Miner intended. I don't know if there was an alternative ending to this. Yeah. I think maybe it was really, let's keep this idea of the boogeyman alive, that he is still out there. But if I'm doing a close reading of this, I think that the reading I've done for this review, again, first time I've thought about it, having this conversation with you, is that that ending into the shack is Jason returning to his mother because that's where the bodies are. So that's yeah. where Paul's body might need to go. Yeah. One of the original ways that they did that ending though, Kendall, because I talked about alternative endings. There was sort of an alternative ending, if you like, or an extended ending by about a second. And oh. yeah. So what we do is the camera zooms in on Mrs. Voorhees head mm-hmm. and she winks if you look closely at the prosthetic, you can actually sort of see human eyes closed there, if that makes sense. Um, And so one thing that you'll notice is that when it zooms in, instead of just holding there and then fading to black, the frame actually freezes. The candles stop flickering because it freezes before we have eye movement to just hold on it for that little while. I'm glad though that they cut that out. I'm not a fan of that as an idea. No, no. Yeah. Yeah, no. No, yeah, that's too, that's too much, I think. Yeah. So that was my theory, but did you particularly have a, were you sitting one way or the other, whether Paul died or not? I mean, now that you've, you've mentioned it, I feel like he, it's probably implied that he died, mm. but then it's just confusing considering, you know, well, Ginny's calling out for him still. So then maybe my mind goes, okay, whatever the confrontation that happened after Jason pulled Ginny through the window, which, I mean, yes, the reveal is great and it, you know, it makes sense just as to be a, a jump scare and, and all yeah. of that. But then, but then to not, the fact that they don't show the ensuing fight and then just, mm. and cut so far ahead to Ginny on a gurney being taken away. I, it's just, it's, there's just too much bridge building that the audience needs to do I think to connect the two scenes but I think maybe maybe Paul did die like maybe Jason you know whatever fight that they did have because I imagine you know Paul would have tried to stop Jason from taking Ginny and killing Ginny and then maybe yeah Ginny maybe Ginny got knocked unconscious and maybe Jason dragged Paul away so therefore Ginny didn't see and that's why she's asking where Paul is Mm. but then I I also wonder you know we don't see any other counsellors you know at least comforting Ginny or being with Ginny like so who called the ambulance then did she call the ambulance like but if she was incapacitated like and that was another thing I didn't understand about the ending why did Ginny and Paul go back to the cabin Mm. why when Ginny Ginny was injured her leg she had had been cut pretty deeply uh like she wasn't going to die or anything but you know that required medical treatment and yeah. they've gone into the cabin after they are convinced that jason is dead and they don't make any attempts to leave they don't make any attempts mm. to contact authorities of any kind yeah i just yeah i don't know i just there's just a lot of questions raised you know yeah. do we think that maybe it would be to get some first aid so like one of the things we know that there is a car because that's where you know that they were able to go from the pub to the grounds we know the phones don't work because that's said at the beginning true that there is aren't, true. that there aren't any phones so yeah so i guess we can then assume that when maybe ted came back from the pub he discovered them 
Um, you know, it would have been nice to have seen him say in the back of the ambulance or going into the ambulance with Ginny to comfort yeah. her. But, you know, I guess we can also draw that Paul isn't alive because if he was, the paramedics would have said he's fine. Like just something as simple yeah, as that. Yeah, just the fact that they, they, they didn't acknowledge it at all either way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, no, absolutely. So, yeah, that it's it is an interesting choice, but I suppose to also maybe be in a space that you know and is safe, perhaps. I mean, I don't know. Do they maybe even know where an ambulance is, <laughs> right? Uh, is if yeah, every, or, or where a hospital is, because everywhere else is is now closing. You know, because even Ted himself has to ask specifically about after hours places, <laughs> which yeah. is which is which is gorgeous when he sort of mocks the old man. I like him. that. Yeah, <laughs> it was funny. It was good. <laughs> oh gosh, he's a character. Yeah, I loved him. He's great. I wanted more of him. Yeah, I think he's definitely the type of character you either love or loathe. <laughs> like you're just like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, okay, that's fair. yeah. But for once, it's kind of like, yay, the goof off survives. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's not really a lot of answers I can give for the ending. You're right. I think it is very abrupt, and I think that'll work one way or the other. I'm okay with it. But I feel like that in the whole franchise, this is one of the more contentious endings. Okay. Um, It is not the most. (laughs) Oh, no, really? It is not the most. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to wait a while to get to it, Kendall. But for those of our, our listeners who are aware of the franchise, two words for you that will tell you everything. Part eight. And that's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Boy. I can't wait for that discussion, Kendall. But we've now come to the end of our discussion for Friday the 13th, part two. Your final thoughts and a score out of five, please. Okay. All right. Yes. So as I said in the beginning, I, uh, I was definitely disappointed with this film, like considering uh, how much I enjoy the first one, even though it's not by any means a perfect film either, but there seems to be a lot more that works for the first film than does here. But there are good elements to this. Like some of the counselors, they do have, like you said, you know, it's the way that they bounce off each other, the relationships, the bonds that they have with one another that really kind of, I guess, help to elevate their characters Mm. to just, you know, more than just people that are waiting to be slaughtered. So there's a lot of nice moments of rapport between the couples and, and, you know, I just, yeah. So they're, so they're really, really great. And I just, I just wish, I feel like you could have done more with them. I feel like there could have been more of a story to this other than random bits of exposition and then, you know, kill, 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 kill and abrupt ending. Like I just, (laughs) there could have been so much more and they could have, it could have been really effective, but you know, there, I mean, the tension is played out superbly, you know, as I said before, in the beginning, it's very effective. And the way just, it's so clever. I love how they do that, you know, first person, you know, perspective, making you feel like you're, you're Jason, you're Mm. stalking, you're prey, like it's all, it's all very good. Yeah. Amy Steele's Ginny Field was wonderful. She was great. And I can see why she's your favorite Mm. final girl because Amy still does such a great job with her performance. 
those moments of, I guess, independence and stuff, like the fact that she's not a typical female in a horror film, mm. the way she, she talks back to Paul and they have this lovely banter, you know, and she doesn't take any crap and it doesn't detract from either of them as people or as, you know, as a man and a woman, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. And yeah, so she's, she's wonderful. And I'm really, I'm really, really glad she survives <laughs> at the end. And I'm really, really glad Ted survived as yeah. well. And I just, I, I wish, you know, if any couple had survived, it was Mark and Vicky because mm -hmm. they were just so sweet and everything and just, yeah, it was just really, really sad. Although one detracting thing I will say <laughs> is when after, after Mark's sadly been, been taken, gone and Vicky comes back and he's missing and she starts to look for him and she walks up the stairs and I was like, girl, <laughs> I don't think he's getting up those stairs by himself, but no, you know, no, that was, so that was, <laughs> that made me laugh quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, was she really just seeing if Jeff and Sandra had seen him? I thought maybe, maybe more so, I, but well, the, the maybe, instinct maybe. to go up before anything's articulated is quite funny. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. Immediately after she does start to ascend, she does call out to, to Jeff and Sandra. So yeah, you're right. But I feel like, anyway, that's, that's, that's just kind of maybe nitpicking too much. Um, <laughs> Bless. She's um, young. <laughs> very young. Yes. Yeah. But no, it's, it, it is a good, like, in terms of a horror film, it's, it's super effective. The kills are fantastic. Each one is different than the last. Very creative. The practical effects are super well done. And it's just a shame that, you know, the MPAA decided to reduce those mm. scenes from the viewing public back for the, orig uh, the original theatrical cut. Because, yeah, I just... The whole point of these films is, is the killing. Yeah. Like, people go to watch these deaths... That's why they're slasher films, you know, you don't, you shouldn't, they shouldn't be detracted or in any way, shape or form, I think. Uh, censorship is never really a good thing yeah. in the arts. That's for sure. Um, yes, yes. So, but yeah, overall, it doesn't hold a candle to the first one for me, even though it has, it does have moments that I enjoyed. There's just too much working against it, especially the ending. It's a two out of five for me. Well... I adore this movie. <laughs> I do have a soft spot for Friday the 13th part two. It was my first Jason movie that mm. I watched. So I do have a sentimental soft spot for it and I'm quite forgiving of its flaws. One of the things that I really love about this movie, and we don't really see it a lot in horror movies, especially is just the camaraderie amongst the cast of characters here. Yeah. They've got, different personality traits and you know you could imagine that not all of them would necessarily want to hang out with one another but you know what they're at this training facility and they're there just enjoying themselves i sense that when making this movie the cast really felt like they were on summer camp they just happened to be making a movie at the same time and those wonderful dynamics and rapports show on screen there's some really lovely moments that when you look at the background, you can see a lot of the extras and some of the smaller players, how they interact with one another, as well as the principal characters as well. It's just a line here, a line there. 
it all feels incredibly authentic and genuine. There's that moment that before Sandra and Jeff go off to explore the grounds where the you know infamous killings happened and they're all by the lake, you can have a look and see that people are all grouped off together and just having chats and, and having fun. I feel that that is incredibly authentic. And there's touches like that, that, I don't know, make me feel like I'm with these kids, like that I'm experiencing some of these things with them. For me, it's a lot of fun. Like I do not pretend whatsoever that Friday the 13th part two has contributed to the sophistication of the art of filmmaking. Not at all. (laughs) What it does do though, is that it is one of quite a few movies that advocates champions and is an argument for the return of practical effects in movies because movies made now that rely so heavily on computer generated effects and digital effects will not age as well as something like this which is you know four decades later there's something to be said about that and also there's care there's a craftsmanship and that's not to take away the care and craftsmanship of people who create digital effects, not at all because they do such wonderful jobs and they look great, but you cannot deny that practical effects will always hold up better. And I think, especially in a B grade movie made for just over a million dollars, it adds to the charm and it adds to the fun. I love the creativity, as you pointed out as well, Kendall. The kills are just so wonderfully creative. They look really good. They're scary. Mm-hmm. They feel painful. <laughs> you know, that they feel really, really painful. And some of them are funny too, because that's why we see these movies, because it's fun to get scared, feel safe, and then feel scared again. <laughs> and you don't really feel safe until the credits have rolled and the, and the cinema lights go up. I think there's just so much joy to have in terms of popcorn entertainment. Um, this movie is significant because it puts Jason Voorhees as the killer and he begins his path of being uh, one of the most significant known and beloved antagonists in American cinema. I was going to say horror movies, but let's face it anywhere. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. He doesn't have his iconic look yet but that's why we have sequels. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, look, this movie, it runs for about what? 86, 87 minutes. It's very economical, sets (laughs) up the premise, introduces the characters, explores their dynamics enough for me to get to know everyone and and to, to, to like them. And then it gets in to why we paid our money at the box office and it delivers the kills quite effectively. So for me, Friday the 13th part two gets a four out of five. It's a lot of fun for me. (laughs) A lot of fun. A lot of fun. So as I said earlier, the Friday the 13th films were supposed to be anthologies. Yes, we had Mrs. Voorhees as the killer in part one. Well, let's bring back this Jason character. Let's use him as part two. But part two made quite a lot of money as well. So... Well, instead of thinking of something new, let's bring Jason back in part three. (laughs) And part three is significant because Jason finds his mask. (laughs) So that is exciting and it is a lot of fun. So (laughs) 
Kendall, until the next Friday, the 13th, Ooh. I've been a Wayne Stellini. And I've been a Kendall Richardson. And you've just experienced Fred Watch. Cue music! <laughs> <laughs> Blooper reel. Hello. Hello. Hi there. Good day. Hey, whoa. (laughs) Hey, whoa. I'm Wayne. Are you coming off Kendall's laptop for me? Sorry, I'm so sorry. I thought I thought that was terrible. So I I thought I was waiting for you to say nope. Nothing you say could be terrible. Okay. Um, depends how you rate this movie. Then we'll then we'll, we'll go back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's great. Okay. Alrighty. Now, it doesn't help that I decided to begin this synopsis with, like, the world's longest and convoluted sentence, but we'll see how I go. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Paul dismisses a persistent urban legend that says... However, it isn't long until the facility's counsellors begin disappearing, one by one. Oh, actually, I'm going to change that to counsellors in training because they're at a training camp. (laughs) Makes more sense, doesn't it? (laughs) well because that's how i ended the previous film's review and because these movies are just so carbon copies of each other i thought that that would be fun (laughs) to just to to, kind of own it (laughs) i like that i I really like that that's good in the face or maybe you know square square in the nuts um yeah i don't know just yeah i guess scott who is scott sorry kendall scott isn't he the isn't scott the um the complete jackass that like takes terry's clothes when she's and he's all weird he's all weird and stalkery with isn't oh yes scott? he is sorry yes that is scott yes okay. <laughs> okay. start start that again <laughs> <laughs> i was like scott i'm like i don't remember scott oh Dwayne. sorry go on <laughs> it's okay it's all right yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's okay Scott just doesn't exercise subtly and he is very much, um, I'll say that again. Yeah. Subtly. Yeah. He doesn't exercise it subtly. Yeah. That's right. Isn't it? Yeah. A supernatural element has to be there because he would be a lot older and bigger and not as, as as mobile and, and, you know, and I guess, you know, uh, the word I'm looking for, I'm struggling. Agile? <laughs> agile, thank you, yes. Um, he, would not be as, he would not be as agile um, if he was the age that I suppose he's supposed to be. He, he's, he's the shark in Jaws, right? <laughs> That's just his yeah. purpose. Um, yep. Yeah, and um, like, you know, actor um, Steve, just, oh, I knew I'd get his name wrong. Kendall, were there any particular um, kills or, or, practical, or practical effects that stood out to you? These movies are about making money, so we will do it. Mm-hmm. One of other, one other, another one of Jason's main enemies are film critics. There are loose ends. And if there is, sorry, there are ends tied up. It's all very good. Yeah. 
and you know, and uh, uh, oh, my words are fumbling. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, Amy Steele's Ginny uh, Field was was wonderful. She was great, and I can see why she's your favorite mm. final girl. <laughs> Cue music. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kendall, I hope you didn't um, think your three dollars was wasted in the end. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> I, w- I, I would have spent it, spent it anyway, spent it again. It's, it was fine. It was good. <laughs> I've seen worse movies. I really have. <laughs> yeah. Oh, true. <laughs> so have I. <laughs> and paid more to see them too. <laughs> yeah. Me too. <laughs> Do you want to do the end end scene? Yes, we should. Go for it. You can do it. I'll I'll just do it. Okay. Yeah, go for it. All right. (laughs) End scene. (laughs) (laughs) Done so. Thank you so much. That was so much fun. Great discussion. That was great. Yeah, really, really good. I loved that. Thank you so much for doing this and for letting me be on the show. I should I should be pressing stop now, shouldn't I?